0: To feed matters, feed navigators podcast series exploring industry challenges, concerns, and emerging topics. I'm Jane Byrne. Today we have the pleasure of talking to David Hunt, co-founder of Kinkus, a computer vision and artificial intelligence company, based in Dublin, California, and Ottawa, where he now leads its strategic focus. David began his career as a corporate banker but had long been fascinated by the opportunities to exploit emerging technology in various agricultural areas. Cainthus has just published an industry note, Five Challenges for More Sustainable Dairy. But isn't it difficult, David, to focus the discussion on sustainability right now, given the negative impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on many dairy producers globally?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I'd make two points on that just to begin. So first of all, when I talk about sustainability, I'm talking about economic, social and environmental sustainability. And secondarily, then sustainability is currently a global megatrend that is impacting all industries, not just agriculture and not just dairy. And COVID-19 is a new factor that we now must consider when discussing what a long-term sustainable dairy system looks like. But COVID-19 is a relatively short-term shock to the system that is showing us that we need to reconsider how we organize certain things. Sustainability in terms of economic, social and environmental sustainability, those are long-term issues that we need to address and to lose focus on where the industry needs to be in the long term in response to a short-term shock, I'm not sure that's a good idea and I'm not sure that ever results in a good outcome for anyone. So the pandemic has shown us that dairy, dairy has struggled to reorganize its supply chains in the face of an unexpected enforced change in consumer behavior. Um, Demand hasn't necessarily reduced. Rather, supply chains that were geared towards getting milk and dairy products to restaurants and, and cafes and things like that now need to be more available for home use consumer purposes as opposed to commercial use. So for long-term dairy economic sustainability, we need to rethink how our supply chains and processing can be improved to deal with something like this again in the future. And it's not just necessarily the bulk and volume of how we do it and where it's going. We, we also probably need to think more about on-farm automation and remote access. So a big reason the processors have been having so much issues is because there is a lot of concentration and there's a lot of human labor requirements there and a lot of human interaction requirements. The more automated a supply chain you have, the, the less of a problem that is. Similarly on farm, we're used to, you know, the veterinarian regularly calling up to the farm, the feed nutritionist regularly calling up to the farm. Perhaps enabling that to happen on a remote access fashion is, uh, is a better idea. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of telemedicine startups where rather than going to visit the doctor, you can you can have a Skype call with them. You can have a Zoom call with them. And similarly, you know, Canthus, my company, is a computer vision company. So enabling people to see what's going on in a dairy and what's going on with the cows on a visual basis without having to visit the dairy, that's probably a good idea in a post-COVID world. And on the social sustainability side, I, I thought it was great to see some dairies starting to deliver milk direct to the consumer again. And, you know, it's, you're seeing companies like Lely that are actually building bolt-on dairy hardware that allows dairy farmers to bottle and brand their own products and deliver direct to the consumer. So you know, if you start seeing more of that, particularly at European level, dairy, which is smaller scale than what you have in the US, um, you know that gets rid a lot of the processing concentration risk. Should we have another pandemic like like COVID again? Um, and I, I do wonder, like, there's there's always two ways to deal with a crisis. You can you can sort of say, "Woe is me," and and feel very sorry about yourself. But crises, no matter how negative their impact is, they create massive amounts of opportunity. So I wonder how many other new opportunities for the dairy industry COVID-19 is actually creating. So in in short, I think it's a great time to be talking about dairy sustainability. But wasn't the US dairy sector, for example, facing a lot of pressure, seeing lots of closures pre-COVID? In terms of the shutdowns that were happening over in the U.S., that was more the processors that were having the issues there. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you look at consumption of milk in the U.S., consumption of milk is increasing, but it's increasing in the form of cheese and uh, creams and products that are not dairy-based but not milk. So the process, and then you also have a lot of companies that are own branding. So, so Walmart creating more vertical integration and creating their own milk streams rather than buying from traditional processors. Um, and ironically, Dean Foods, one of the the big um, bankruptcies, there they were in my portfolio when I was a corporate banker back in the mid thousands. And the only thing that surprised me when Dean Foods went bankrupt was that it didn't happen 10 or 15 years earlier. Uh, you know, they were not a healthy company and people who just did straight milk processing were having a smaller and smaller market and they were having the supermarkets becoming competitors rather than customers. So while you can say certain aspects of US dairy is suffering, Certainly milk processors are suffering. It's not necessarily true to say that dairy as an industry in the US was suffering prior to COVID-19. I mean, a a lot of the dairy farmers are doing quite well there and milk prices had improved quite a bit before the COVID-19 crisis came in and their exports were also doing very well. But was there an actual trigger for your industry note, five challenges for more sustainable dairy then? It's funny, I'd actually started writing this um, before COVID came in. And it was principally because I was getting irritated with challenges that were being presented for the dairy industry that I didn't feel were real challenges. And we we wrote an earlier uh, article that was published in a few places called The Bull About Cows that focused on the five things, the five claims that are made against the dairy industry that are almost entirely false. Um, so this was kind of as a, written as a, as a partner piece to that article, where these are five challenges that the dairy industry really does need to think about. Um, and I mean, like, to give you an example of the sort of false claims that you get about dairy, like one of them is something like it, it takes 10,000 litres of water to, to produce uh, burger and the reality of that situation is 97 percent of that water is rain uh, and and only three percent of it is blue water that it would be potable or usable by a human and when you factor in the real world's truth of how those numbers break down it's it's actually not in any way shape or form a, a a big problem can it be improved upon yes of course it can you should always look to improve any aspect of your business Uh, but is it a reason that we should consider not buying dairy products? No, that's completely untrue. So for this article I was basically trying to explore what are genuine big picture issues that dairy needs to improve upon.
0: And One of the areas that you mentioned um, is that if the food trade was actually based on valuing the nutritional value or density of food rather than the weight of it, then this, this aspect would have powerful downstream effects. Uh, and you mentioned that some countries have quality bonuses for somatic cell count, fat and protein content, and that this is a direction that the, the, the dairy sector should travel in. But just, I'm just wondering, how, how can technology such as tools that, that generate animal feed intake nutrition data could help in this regard, David?
1: Yeah, so I started my agricultural career in grain trading. So I'm I'm principally from a crops background rather rather than a livestock background, even though I've been lives in livestock the last couple of years. Um, and when I ran the grain trading company, I, I always struggled with the logic that trading grain was based on admix and bushel weight or KPH and moisture. Uh, when the, the end user mostly needed to know about the nutritional content of the grain they were buying. I mean, the, the first thing a feed manufacturer does when they get the delivery of 1,000 tons of grain they've bought on AdMix, KPH and Moisture is they check the nutritional content of it. So from a trader perspective, I got it, you know, pretending that grains are a homogenous product enables them to be more easily traded as a commodity. But I always viewed this as a problem to be solved, rather than a beneficial aspect of the feed industry. More nutritious feed gives more nutritious milk. And this is like where I start getting into, like, in my opinion, one of the biggest problems we have in global agriculture is how we produce crops. and. The, the current manner we, we use to produce crops, which is great Norman Borlaug's Green Revolution style of uh, chemical inputs plus monocrops, and um, that systematically degrades the soil every year we grow in that fashion. And we end up in what's known as the Red Queen uh, scenario, where we're putting down more and more inputs to produce approximately the same amount of grain in sort of like your high-yield modern ag countries. So the reason for this is because the farmers are financially incentivized to squeeze every last kilo out of the ground that they can. And and quality beyond bushel weight really isn't that much of a concern and if farmers were rewarded for the quality of feed they produce rather than the weight of feed they produce then that would financially incentivize them to focus on improving the quality of their soils rather than just trying to wring everything out of the soils that they can and you know that's something that's universally positive for everybody because healthy soils capture more carbon uh, they're they're less likely to have pathogens lower risk of disease and all that sort of thing but there's there's quite a big adoption period because you know fungicides herbicides pesticides things like that they're they're needed in many cases and we are starting to see a lot of technology companies uh, emerging that are looking at microbial solutions and and pheromone based solutions to to replace pesticides and replace chemical fertilizers that again degrade the microbes in the soil that that naturally fix nitrogen from the from the atmosphere. Um, But the only way we can facilitate such a system is if we have the technology to analyze the nutritional quality of the grain as it comes out of the field, pricing trading mechanisms based on this and then sensors validating that the quality of the feed going to the animals uh, and the quality of the milk they output match up. And you know this applies to grass forage and and fire crops as well as grains. The the nascent technologies required to create a quality-based feed system already exist Um, I mean, if you look at Cargill's reveal program where they're using handheld NIR spectrometers to to look at feed quality, uh, UAV crop monitoring while that still hasn't delivered on its promise. I, I still believe that's going to be an incredibly important future tool. Uh, inline milk sensing is is also very important to, to see the exact quality of the milk that is coming out and then to tie it back to the quality of the feed, the quality of the environment and so on. Um, but all of this still needs quite a bit of development. And I mean, even back when I was running uh, my grain trading company, Comics McKinnon, back in the early 2010s, uh, we we were even trying to build in high-speed NIR spectrometers into all of our port storage at that moment in time exactly because we wanted to we believed that the industry would and should move towards that that quality-based system um so so that's effectively how i think technology can can help in that regard if we can't check the nutritional quality of our feedstuffs in small batches as close to real time as possible then we can't trade based on quality and we can't promote quality bonuses so technology for me is the key enabler of us to switch to that system that i think will be better for everyone
0: and does regenerative ag have a role to play in this uh, or CRISPR?
1: <laughs> so so regenerative ag I, I think is a bit of a, i i've so I, I have a bit of an ecology background as well, and, and the, the regenerative ag thing is is something I struggle with a little bit. So it dep- when you say regenerative ag, that's a broad term that covers a lot of things. And certain aspects of regenerative ag are, are definitely something that we need to be thinking a bit more about. Um, but other aspects of regenerative ag, like when people talk about grazing livestock, restoring habitats and things like that. Well, I'm painfully aware that grazing livestock are one of the best ways to restore a degraded environment. However, if badly managed, grazing livestock can also be one of the best ways to destroy an environment. So the whole regenerative ag thing, I prefer to think in terms of a circular ag system rather than regenerative ag simply because a circular system is more focusing on making sure all waste streams circle back in and are reusable uh, which which i think is a better way of viewing it than solely referring to a whole host of different terms as regenerative when some can or cannot be depending on certain variables Uh, with respect to CRISPR yeah CRISPR is has fascinating Uh, future potential applications. But, you know, we've already seen some negative sides of CRISPR as well, where uh, there was a, a project looking to remove horns in cattle using CRISPR that resulted in a whole lot of unexpected outcomes beyond simply removing the horns. So, While CRISPR is a fascinating technology, it's a powerful technology, and it's definitely part of our agricultural uh, future, the precautionary principle is writ large in that one, where we don't fully know what every gene does. And inserting some genes or taking some out, they can have unexpensive consequences, and we don't know what they're going to be. So, yeah, there's, I think CRISPR will be important, but I I think it's going to be quite a bit of time before we have sufficient knowledge to meaningfully apply that technology at commercial ag scale.
0: I mean, more on the plant editing side of things, the new plant breeding techniques, you know, using gene (gasps) editing there.
1: Oh, the transbreeding thing. Oh, so on the crop side. Yeah, again, the, so... Similar to the point that I made about uh, CRISPR applications to livestock, those same principles apply to plants. Um, we we don't like. I think the the genome of a of a wheat plant is is much much larger than the genome of a human. Uh, if if I remember correctly, it could be wrong on that, but I think it's much much larger than the genome of a human. So for us to go switching genes in and out uh, with the ease of access and read write that that CRISPR gives you, again you can get all sorts of unintended consequences from that. So while I do think that. CRISPR will be an important tool. In the short term, I'm much more of a fan of using technology to enable us to farm in polycultures with precision applications. Um, so creating more ecologically intensifiable and ecologically sustainable systems uh, Think concepts like micro crop rotation and things like that and i mean if you look at things like the hands-free hectare project in harper adams university where they are now farming fully automated without any humans touching things. When you look at that in a more advanced fashion, in a more aggressive fashion, and you think, okay, could we get many little robots, like again, what the small robot company are trying to do in the UK with tillage agriculture, can you get many small robots to farm in a more ecologically sustainable and intensifiable fashion? Uh, while reducing the amount of artificial inputs and again, doing things like crop rotation so it's less harmful on the soil and growing many different crops in an individual field. So you start getting some symbiosis going on and so it's less hard on the insects because monocrops are kind of like a biological desert uh, for the most part. Uh, farming in a more ecologically sensible or e- e- ecologically sympathetic manner can potentially give us higher yields with lower inputs and a far lower ecological and environmental cost.
0: And what about genetic selection then uh, david the the idea of maybe selecting cows based on factors other than milk production for example how can that improve the environmental and social sustainability of of dairy farming
1: yeah so the so the dairy industry has done an absolutely amazing job over the last 30 40 years in terms of reducing the number of cows and increasing the amount of milk they produce. So in the US, uh, we've got approximately half the number, I think there were 20 million cows or so in the 1960s, and there is nine and a half million cows today in the US producing nearly twice the amount of milk we were producing then. And it's it's a truism to say that your, your animal with the lowest environmental footprint is your animal that gives you the highest output of milk yield and again we've another article on the blog on the campus blog where we we point out that if you do nothing more than map best practices in the united states to all dairy countries uh so currently we've got 268 million dairy cows globally and those dairy cows yield an average of uh, 2,400 kilos of milk per animal per year, average U.S. yield is 10,500 kilos of milk per animal per year. year. If you get the U.S. average applied to a global average, then you only need 69 million cows to provide the same amount of milk that we currently have 268 million cows providing today, and all the environmental and sustainability and emissions gains that come with that. Now, it's not as simple as that, because obviously there are cultural and, and economic uh, factors that, that stop you from just doing that immediately. But the point is, you can see how something like that can make a huge difference if people have the will uh, to do it. Now, getting back to genetics. Today, Dairy Cat, we've gotten that dramatic improvement that we've seen in the US, selecting almost entirely on, produce, on ability to produce weight to milk but we don't really know how efficiently these cows are producing, at least not in a commercial uh, environment. So as their their level of feed intake relative to the amount of milk produced is mostly unknown in a commercial se- uh, setting. When you can start breeding based on the cows that have the most efficient feed to milk ratio, then you can get much, much better feed, uh, feed efficiency improvements. So currently, We're we're breeding the cows that are producing the most milk, but they could be eating an absolutely massive amount of food to produce that milk. A cow that is producing maybe a little bit less milk, but is proportionally eating way less food to get that milk, that's going to be a better cow to breed and that cow is going to make you more money. And it's also going to have a lower environmental footprint. If you take it a step further, in time, you might be able to select the animals that convert nutrients the best. So instead of looking at weight of feed to weight of milk, you'd start looking at the weight of protein, fats, et cetera, in versus the amount of protein fat coming out in the milk. So again, you're you're trying to produce a more nutritionally efficient processing system. And with respect to genetic selection and health, If we started focusing on breeding animals that have historically required less health interventions, well, that also creates a much better environment whereby you're having lower medical costs, less vet time, and you're creating a more resilient animal. And viruses love genetic homogeneity. Uh, it's easier work, work for them. So having broader genetic diversity with better immune systems can help avoid disease in our dairy animals. And we've seen recent pandemics in the poultry industry. Um, we've, we've had foot and mouth in, in dairy and beef, obviously. So, you know, trying to create a scenario where we have healthier animals with broader genetic diversity, that can help mitigate against pandemic-related issues like like uh, foot and mouth and, and other things like that. Um, and finally, we, we've also done next to no work in exploring dairy genetics and methane emissions. Again, we've entirely focused on who produces the most milk. I, I don't are there breeds out there that respirate with lower methane? and And can we get those genetics into high-yield commercial dairy? And going back to when you were asking about CRISPR earlier, if we do succeed in isolating those genes, Can we use CRISPR to accelerate the development of those genes into a high yield commercial setting uh, rather than having to rely on natural genetic selection and selective breeding, which can, which can take longer?